0: We begin our reading in John chapter 2, and verse 13, it says, "...the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple He found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And He told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make My Father's house a house of trade." His disciples remembered that it was written, "'Zeal for your house will consume Me.'" So the Jews said to Him, "'What sign do You show us for doing these things?' Jesus answered them, "'Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up.'" The Jews then said, "'It has taken forty-six years to build this temple, and will You raise it up in three days?' But He was speaking about the temple of His body. When therefore He was raised from the dead, His disciples remembered that He had said this, and they believed the Scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken." Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Lisa and I were fairly newly married. We went out to the movie Hoosiers. It's about a coach that had coached up in a college and stuff, and then because of some mishaps in his life and on the court, he had, was away from coaching for a number of years, and then he gets hired on as a high school boys basketball coach down in Indiana, down in Hoosier country, and where they take that kind of thing very seriously. And he comes in to, to coach his kids, and, and there's a scene in the movie where the coach shows up for his first practice with these kids, And when he comes into the gym, he finds kind of an overzealous community member that has been helping coach the team in the absence of a coach in there running a practice. And he comes into the practice and the guy that's been helping out comes up to the coach and begins to tell him how things are going to go. And he makes it pretty clear to that coach that that's not how things are going to go. He has something different in mind. It kind of gets a little bit heated there for the moment. And at one point, the overzealous community member, he looks at him and he says, you know, mister, there's two kinds of dumb. One of them is the guy that barks at the moon and goes out in the rain. And, and he says, the other one is the one that does the same thing, but he does it in my living room. He says, the first one doesn't really matter. The second one you're kind of forced to deal with. But I remember from that movie thinking, you know what, this overzealous community member, he's confused, right? Because the fact of the matter is, is, well, well, that coach was hired to be the coach. This guy got to fill in for a little bit, but this guy was hired to be the coach. And so when he comes into the practice, that is his practice. This is his team. That is his gym and the court floor there at the moment. And you know, I was thinking about that this week because I see that a little bit when we find Christ in this situation here because what has happened it's not unlike one of Christ's parables you know later on Christ will tell some parables about how God let Israel out to some people that were supposed to maintain it and take care of it for a while kind of like that that one guy was supposed to help with the basketball team but then they don't do their job they don't take care of it well and so finally he sends servants to go back and to collect from them and they abuse the servants and finally sends his son and they even kill his son You see, the religious leaders of Israel were kind of the people that God let His nation out to in a sense. That He allowed them to have some authority and some leadership within those realms, but they totally blew it. But now what you have happening is Jesus is showing up and Jesus comes back into the temple. Into the house of God. Whose house is it? It's God's house. Who are the leaders? They were husbandmen. They were people that were servants of Christ. supposed to be serving along and and maintaining Israel, encouraging Israel in godliness, but they've completely blown it. And Christ, as He comes back in, who is Christ? He is, He is the Son. They're gonna ask Him, give us a sign to show how you have this authority to do these things. In other words, they're saying, who do you think you are? Well, Jesus knows just who He is. He is the Son of God in His Father's house. This is His house. This is His place. They just did not understand. They didn't grasp it. They were thinking that they were more than what they were. And they weren't recognizing who Christ was and they needed to understand. Just like that one temporary coach needed to recognize who the coach was and give way, these people needed to recognize who Christ was. And that's what, as we look through this passage, I think God really does for us is gives us some clear understanding. The Apostle John, as he writes this down, he's not confused about who Christ is. In fact, he's later on looking back at the scene and knows even more fully who Christ is by this time that he authors this Gospel. And he's writing and he's trying to help us to understand Christ. And that's what we want to look at this morning here is we want to gain a better understanding of Christ as we see Him go through these different activities here. The things that we're going to answer about Christ is first of all, we're going to answer who He is. There are a lot of things in this passage that really... Point to who Christ is. In fact, there are things that should have prepared the leaders of that day so that they would have recognized Christ when He got there. You know, the passage starts out in verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand. And that's why Jesus is going up to Jerusalem. He's going up to celebrate the Passover service. The Passover pointed all the way back to the time of Moses. When God sent Moses to tell Pharaoh to let my people go, and Pharaoh refused to do it, and God would begin to unfold these plagues upon Pharaoh. Uh, the very tenth plague was the most severe, and he said, God said, this is the one where I'm going to get glory over Pharaoh, and Pharaoh will pay you to leave after this. And the last plague that he brings upon Pharaoh is the death of the firstborn. And so God tells Moses to tell the children of Israel that everybody's supposed to take a lamb, kill the lamb, take the blood of the lamb, and put it on the lintel over the doors and the two doorposts of their house. They're supposed to go in their house and clean out the leaven from out of their house. Leaven's always a symbol of sin in the Bible. And then you're going to feast on this lamb. And He says, everybody stay in their house because my death angel is going to come over Egypt. Wherever I see the blood, I'm going to pass over. In other words, I'm going to skip that house. I'm not going to bring judgment there. Wherever I see the blood, I'm going to pass over. But wherever I don't see the blood, the firstborn of that house is going to die. The firstborn son. The firstborn of all of Egypt dies. The firstborn of all of Israel lives. That was a picture of Christ. How one day God would send another lamb. And another lamb would bleed and die. And when we put our faith in this lamb, then His blood is applied to us. So when God looks at us, He sees the blood of His Son covering us. And when it comes to our judgment, He passes over us in judgment because it's already been taken care of in Christ. Who is Christ? The very first thing that we see that indicates who Christ is, is that this feast that Christ is going to partake in, that feast is about Him. You know, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, they were dealing with some sin in the church that they needed to get rid of. Just like back in the day when you celebrated the Passover, you cleansed out the leaven. He said, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. He points to the fact that that Passover was pointing to Christ. Well, not only do we see the Passover involved in this situation, but Jesus makes the analogy of Himself, of His body, to the temple. He is the fulfillment of the temple. They come to Him and they say, what sign do you show us that you have the authority to do this? And if they ask Him to do that, He says, here's the sign. Tear down this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. It's not overly apparent it wouldn't have been to them. It is to us. Because we got that 2020. We get to see it in the rearview mirror. Even the apostles didn't totally know what He was talking about here until they got to see it in the rearview mirror after He rose again from the dead. And they realized He was talking about the temple of His body. But Jesus is making this analogy comparing Himself to the temple. What is the temple? The temple, we'd have to start a little bit before. We'd have to start with the tabernacle, right? Because when God had Israel come out of Egypt into the wilderness, they were all living in tents. God had them make Him a tent as well. It's called the tabernacle. The word tabernacle means tent. And so wherever Israel pitched a tent, God's tent was right in the middle. And He dwelt among His people. That's really the whole point of it. The tabernacle and the temple is it's the dwelling place of God. But then when they got into the Promised Land, they all got to move into homes. And, and then finally they came to a point and David says, you know what, this is crazy. I'm living in a palace. Everybody else is living in homes. God's still in a tent. We're still using the tabernacle. And David wanted to build him a permanent tabernacle, the temple. God told David, you're not going to build my temple. Your hands are too bloody, but your son will. And so Solomon built the temple. And what does the, the temple become? It becomes a new house of God. In fact, they had move-in day. First Kings chapter 8, verses 10 and 11. And the temple's all done. And the last thing that they bring in is the Ark of the Covenant. They bring the Ark of the Covenant in and they place it where it's supposed to be within the Holy of Holies. And then they leave. It says that when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Now even Solomon said, look, the heavens of heavens can't contain you, but please dwell with us here. Let this be the place that recognizes your presence. Jesus tells him, tear down this temple in three days I'll raise it up again. You know what? The Jewish people were a little familiar with that. Jewish people, they had the temple there. They had sacrifices in place, but their hearts were not in it and they were following other gods and all kinds of things. And so God had them carried off into captivity into Babylon. So the Babylonians came in and wreaked havoc on the temple. Carried them off captive. Well, then later, after the captivity's ending and they get to start coming back, a man named Zerubbabel leads the effort to come and rebuild the temple. And then up toward Christ's time, Herod decides to lead a remodeling project on the temple. So the Jews are pretty familiar with the idea of the temple being destroyed and then rebuilt. That's a good thing because in AD 70, Rome's gonna come in and sack the temple again, and they're gonna pretty much turn over every stone, and that's why when you look at any pictures of it, currently all you see is a wailing wall over there, a little fragment of the temple left in place. This event where Jesus comes into the temple is really, uh, predicted in the Old Testament. And you look at Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, he says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Remember we focused on him already in chapter 1, that's John the Baptist. It says, And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to His temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, He is coming, says the Lord of hosts, who can endure the day of His coming and who can stand when He appears? So there's this passage in Malachi that says, you know what? This Messiah is going to come and there's going to be this forerunner that's going to prepare His way before Him. And then He's going to enter His temple. He's going to suddenly come into His temple. And what do we see in Jesus here? Jesus comes into the temple rather suddenly and immediately starts rearranging the furniture. Starts flipping over table and driving out animals. And it had pointed to this. Now, there's kind of a already but not yet aspect to this, right? Because this is one of those passages where you see the passage talk about Jesus coming into His temple and and the, the way that it's portrayed and the elements that are involved. It's like... Well, He did come into His temple here, but it doesn't really look like everything happened that was supposed to happen. So so is this a fulfillment of that or not? And the answer is kind of yes and no. It's kind of a partial fulfillment, but more to come later. Like for example, in Joel, the prophet Joel says, you know what, there's coming a time when God is going to pour out His Spirit on all flesh. His old men are going to dream dreams and the young men are going to see visions and the Spirit is going to come upon these people and it goes on and, and describes this great and awesome This terrible day of the Lord. The sun's going to be darkened and the moon's going to turn to blood and all these things. Well, when you get to Acts chapter 2, and the Holy Spirit is poured out on the people at Pentecost, Peter says, look, this is the fulfillment of Joel. God is pouring out His Spirit on His people right here. And so that's why you see some of these amazing things happen. But yet, when you read down through it, you say, well, yes, some of it happened, but all of it didn't happen. So is it the fulfillment of that or not? Yes, it's the fulfillment of it, but it's not all the fulfillment of it. Most prophecy in the Bible has like a a short-term and a long-term part of its fulfillment. We live in a time that has a lot of that. We have a lot of things that we have uh, the beginnings of it, but not the whole thing. Right, the Bible said that God was going to write His commands on our hearts. And we have a bit of that through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit within us. But we don't have all of that. Ephesians tells us that Holy Spirit in dwelling within us is just the earnest money, just the down payment of all that we are going to experience in it. We know we don 't have it all yet because those passages go on to promise it 's going to be a time when nobody's going to need to teach their neighbor about God because everybody's going to know God, and clearly we 're not at that point, but God definitely has borne his through his spirit, brought his words to bear in our hearts, writing his word on our heart and so But I think that our experience of that in itself is going to become more as well. And so we live in this time that's kind of already but not yet. So Christ comes into the temple at this point. And is it a fulfillment of that? Yes, because John the Baptist has prepared the way and Christ is coming into His temple. But is it the ultimate fulfillment of that? No, that's what will happen at His second coming. But you know what? The temple is the dwelling place of God with man. Jesus is the place where God dwells with man. In John chapter 1, remember where it says that Jesus came and He made His dwelling among us? And we talked about how that word dwelling is the word tabernacle. Well, what is one of the names that was given to Christ? Remember at his birth in Matthew chapter 1 verse 23, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus is the fulfillment of that temple. In fact, Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 6, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. The temple was just an image of what Christ would be. He would be the way that God dwells with with man, and among man. In fact, when we get to the end of the book of Revelation, when he's looking at the new heavens and the new earth, and he's describing the new earth and the place where we're going to be living, there's going to be no temple. It says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. You see, the temple was the place where the sheep were sacrificed and access to God was granted and occurred. Jesus is the Lamb that was sacrificed. He is the High Priest that went in and offered Himself. And He is the only way for us to have access to the Father. That's what Christ is. So Christ is, who is He? He is the Passover. He is the temple. And He is, as He told him the resurrection. What sign do you show? And He says, I'll give you a sign. Tear down this temple. In three days I'll rebuild it. But He spoke to them of the temple of His body. You know, it's kind of funny. The book of John, as we've recognized is a recording of all these signs that Jesus did to prove who He is. The other Gospels record other signs as well, other miracles that Jesus did that are all intended to prove that He is the Son of God to prove who He is. But whenever the religious leaders would come to Christ and say, show us a sign, you know what He would say? This is a wicked generation and there will be no sign given to you. <laughs> He's would them sign after sign after sign and they say, show us a sign. And He says, nope, not going to do it. Except for one. He says, I'll show you one. And it's the greatest of His signs. And you know what the sign is? He tells them here, He says, tear down this temple and in three days I'll raise it again from the dead. Matthew chapter 12, we have another setting. It says some of the scribes and Pharisees answered Him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But He answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation to condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. You know, you get to Matthew chapter 16 and Jesus brings up Jonah again and He tells him the same thing again. Turn down this temple three days it will rise again. Just as Jonah was three days in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days in the belly of the earth. Jesus is the resurrection. Who is Jesus? Jesus is that Passover. Jesus is the fulfillment of the temple. The temple is all about God's presence with us, and that is found in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the resurrection from the dead, just as He claimed to them. That's who He is. But uh, we need to answer another question. That is, what is He like? I think we've got some work to do on this one. Right? And the reason I think we've got some work to do on this is because I think we get a lopsided perspective of who Christ is. You know, when you look at pictures of Jesus, you've got this gentle, soft, effeminate character, and it absolutely is not what He was. All the paintings and drawings that we have are at least 300 years removed from anybody that actually saw Christ. And so the paintings and the drawings are actually more a representation of their own culture than Christ's culture. You know what? Now, we don't want to get lopsided the other way either. The problem is with the pendulum is it tends to swing both ways too far, right? Because Christ is meek and He is gentle. And He definitely portrays Himself that way within within Scripture. But you know what? Christ, that isn't all that Christ is. And we're seeing a little bit of the other side of Him right now. We talked about it in uh, adult Sunday school this morning about how when He was given the revelation from God, He is told that He's meeting the Lion of Judah, and then He gets to see the Lamb of God who conquered. and We And we talked about that contrast a bit. Some places where you see Christ unfolded in the Gospels, you see the meek and the mild, you see the Lamb. This time we're getting to see the lion. The lion of Judah is coming out of Christ in, the, in this temple. But you know what? It's not the only place. When you get toward the end of his ministry, he's going to stand there toe-to-toe with the religious leaders and seven times he's going to say, woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites! And at different times through his ministry, he has very hard sayings and, and commands for people. And he's not always gentle and meek. The disciples recognize this in him. and said, you know what, it's just like David. David says, for zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen upon me. In other words, the point is, Christ went into the temple and He says, look at how they're treating my Father's house. And He took it very personally. He takes and He takes the ropes and He bunches them together so it would look like a scourge. And He begins to drive animals and people out of that temple. We need to recognize that that is part of the description of who Christ is as well. Well, why did he do it? Well, because they were making a mockery of the temple of God. You go into the gates of the temple and the first thing is the outer courts. That's the court of the Gentiles. If you're a Gentile convert to Judaism, that's the only place you can worship there is in the court of the Gentiles. The high priest's name was Annas. Contemporary critics of that time would sometimes refer to all these goings on as the Bazaar of Annas. In other words, the Circus of Annas. You see, people had to travel from all over the place to come and worship there at this Passover time. Traveling with animals, not the greatest. And so, as a convenience, and this actually isn't a bad idea, they provided animals for sale to be sacrificed. But it ended up getting corrupted. It used to be for sale across the Kidron Valley. You'd buy them over there and then bring them over to the temple site across the valley and then offer them up as a sacrifice. But you see, Annas kind of, When you're the high priest and you control the temple, and so you have your inspectors of what animals are good enough to be sacrificed. And so to make matters a little bit more in their favor, they had a rigorous training from what I understand. In fact, the information that we have says that their trainers were supposedly so good that they could tell you not only if an animal was unclean right now, but if it might be unclean sometime in its future that's not detectable yet. And so you're not able to sacrifice that animal. You instead need to buy one from them. You can see where this is going. They're making a lot of money selling animals. Imagine trying to go and worship with the smell from the animals and the noise from the animals and the people making their deals for the animals. And then you have the money changers on top of all that. Every Israelite every year had to pay a half a shekel tax for the temple tax. That was a local coin. So people coming from out of the area needed to get their money changed to local currency to be able to pay that half shekel tax. And so they would charge, some commentators say, as much as 12.5% to get this half shekel coin in order to be able to pay your half shekel tax. Not only that, but if you had a larger coin that needed to be broken down, like say you had something worth two shekels, they would charge you for each half shekel that you would get from it. So in other words, you're going to get charged for four half shekels. One commentator said you could pay as much as a day's wages for the average gut person just to get your money changed to be able to give your half shekel to the temple. You see, it was very corrupt. And that's what Jesus came into. But what does He do? He drives them out. In our culture, we focus a lot on the Lamb of God and very little on the Lion of Judah. I've met more than one person, but I remember one lady in particular. I was talking to her. She was a church member and a Sunday school teacher in a church. Not our church. But we were talking at a baseball game one evening and she proceeded to tell me how she didn't believe in a hell. I said, don't you teach Sunday school at your church? And she says, yeah. I said, you don't believe in hell? She said, no. No she proceeded to tell me that God was just too nice. God was too nice to send anybody to hell. There's, there's no hell. I guess being nice enough to send your own son to pay for their sins isn't enough. You've got to be nice enough to let them stay in their sins and still not have a hell. Still not have any punishment for it. But she said, God is just too nice. He would never send anybody to hell. I just can't believe He would do that. I said, well, why do you believe in heaven? What we know about heaven comes from the same source as what we know about hell. So if they're telling us the truth about heaven, why aren't they telling us the truth about hell? You know, Jesus taught more about hell than He did about heaven. If you don't believe what Jesus said about hell, then why do you believe what He said in John 3.16? And I don't think she'd say He's lying here, but she just says, well, I she doesn't believe it. I don't, I don't get it. That's a head-scratcher for me. But you know what the point is? As much as Jesus came to lay down His life so that we could go to heaven, He also warned us very direly about hell. You know, earlier in the service, we sang a song that said, Well done. And that is because we're looking forward to when we stand before Christ, He's going to say, well done. Welcome to the place that you belong. But you know what? That's not the only statement that's going to be made in that day. You know, there's another statement that's going to be made that's going to be, depart from me. I never knew you. And Jesus is the one that taught us both of them. You see, Jesus is not only the Savior of the world. When He comes the next time, He is also its judge. And Jesus is not all warm fuzzies. There's some cold prickly stuff dealing with some of the teachings of Christ. But it's to to wake us up. It's to wake us up to our sin so that we can receive the love of God that is poured out to us in Christ. Revelation chapter 6 and verse 15 says, Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and every slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us! and hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand it. This passage is looking forward to a time It's going to be a terrible time on the earth just before Christ comes back. And this time, if you read through the book of Revelation, you're going to find a word repeated many, many times and it's the word wrath. And this is a time when God is going to pour out His wrath on unbelieving mankind. Sinful mankind. You know what? Usually when you think about lamb, you don't think about wrath. Lambs are the soft, cuddly creatures. You think about the lion. You think about wrath. But not the lamb. But you know what? Even in the book of Revelation, even in the picture of the lamb that was willing to lay down His life for us, when He comes back, if we don't put our faith in Him, it's wrath. Revelation chapter 14, verses 9-11 through says, Another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day nor night. These worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name, wrath... Anger, torment. You know what? My point is this: just in the Book of Revelation, you could find so many more. It gives a picture of it being like a wine press, and God just stomping out His wrath upon ungodly mankind at that point. But I don't want to go into all those details. I just want to recognize this, shall we? That as much as God is gracious and merciful and holy, He is also angry. He is holy. He is just. He is a God of love, and He is a God of wrath those two things are necessary you know what parents think with me on this thing when you got something that comes into your child's life that threatens the health or well-being of your child if I have a child and they're tempted toward or drawn to drug use doesn't make me like drugs more because they're part of my kid's life you know what it makes makes me hate drugs more because now it's threatening my child it's threatening it's the same way with God But it's not just because of that. It's also because it's an affront to His nature. It's affront to His character. You see, Christ was not only the gentle Lamb. He was also the Lion of Judah that would roar into that temple and flip over tables and drive people out with a whip. He's the one that would say, come to me, I'm meek and lowly. Come and find rest for your souls. He's also the one that would stick His finger in the face of the Pharisees and say, you hypocrites. You blind leaders of the blind. Worshipping half a God is worshiping the wrong God. It's idolatry. If we're worshiping God, we've got to recognize what He is in all of His revelation of Himself. Now, lastly, what does He expect? Well, we can see pretty clearly when He comes into the temple what He expects. He's expecting His house to be a house of prayer and worship, to show reverence and respect for God. And so, what does He do? He, he, He cleanses His temple. In fact, that's what we call it. And He's going to do it again. At the end of His ministry, when He comes back, He's going to cleanse it again. He's cleansing His temple. He's setting things straight. You know in First Corinthians chapter five and verses six through eight, he says, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Remember we read that from earlier? And him talking about how Christ is our Passover? What are they supposed to do because of the Passover? Get rid of the sin, get rid of the leaven. He expects to find us cleansed because that's why he died on the cross, is to cleanse us. What is the temple? You know what today where the temple is, it's you, it's me, it's us together. First Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, he says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. He's writing to them as a church and he's saying, Look, church, you are the temple. You are the temple. Behave accordingly. But then also when he gets to chapter 6, he's going to say not only is the whole church a temple, but individuals are the temple of God. Why? Because the Holy Spirit dwells within us. But he starts with the values. He says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom you have from God, you are not your own. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And so you see, we collectively as Little Fork Baptist Church are the temple of God. In this world, we are the dwelling place of God as He dwells in us collectively with His Spirit. But we are also as individuals the dwelling place of God because His Holy Spirit dwells within us. And so we should live accordingly. Remember that passage in Malachi where he talks about Christ coming into His temple. What is the outcome of that? He says He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver and He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. 2 you know, Corinthians would point out similarly, what agreement has the temple of God with idols For we are the temple of the living God. He says we need to come out from this world and be separate. God says then I will make my dwelling place within you. You know We are that temple. And that's what God expects. What did Jesus expect when He got to the temple and saw it wasn't what He expected to be? What did He do? He cleaned it up. When Jesus comes into your life and mine, He cleanses us. When He finds the things that shouldn't be there, He gets rid of them. When He finds that something's missing, He brings it in. And we should be an active part of that process. Jesus is holding them responsible. Did you think that when you went from living a life without God to living a life with God that He wouldn't want to come in and rearrange the furniture in your life a little bit? And that's exactly what Jesus does. Jesus shows up and there's a serious absence of God in the very house of God. Well, when Jesus looks into our heart, what does He want to see? He wants to see within us, the very house of God, He wants to see the presence of God alive and well.